1: Soldiers like Fabius Kosciuszko and Kazimierz Pulaski forged the beginning of historic ties between the United States and Poland. America's revolution succeeded, but Poland was temporarily wiped off the map in 1795, and in the 19th century many freedom-seeking Poles came to the new world as refugees from failed rebellions against the Russian overlords. Some came to stay, some came with dreams of returning to carry on the fight. And when the Civil War began in America in 1861, Poles living here disagreed on its nature. Was it a fight for national independence against an overbearing imperial government? Or was it a fight for human freedom against the slave-owning plutocracy? We'll learn about the choices made by nine Polish-Americans and the roles they played in the war. From Dr. Mark Bielski, author of Sons of the White Eagle in the American Civil War Divided Poles in a Divided Nation That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio
0: Streaming live The leader in internet talk radio VoiceAmerica.com
2: Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iphone android or blackberry the voice america interactive radio player powered by aircast gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere live and on demand no registration is required listen to your favorite voice america hosts and discover new ones download the voice america mobile app for iphone android or blackberry powered by aircast visit the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market
0: the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And
1: welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio field headquarters on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not on the campus of East Carolina University or speaking for my regular employer or for anyone else, just speaking for myself. As I know, our guest will do the same thing. This is the third Wednesday of the month in June 2016. Since we last uh, talked on this show a week ago, we have uh, suffered, sadly, another mass shooting in the United States, one of the victims was an alumnus of East Carolina University. If there were a flag flying outside of Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, it would be at half-mast. Uh, to put a Civil War gloss on this event, uh, General Sherman wrote to his wife on June 30, 1864, I begin to regard the death and mangling of a couple of thousand men as a small affair, a kind of morning dash. That That's a quote I've cited elsewhere. I used to sort of wonder about it, but living now in a society that seems helpless to do anything but accept the kind of events we've just suffered, uh, it's all too applicable. Well, let's move from the 21st century back to the 19th and to Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, Tonight's show is coming to you in traditional telephonic sound because we just had a big electrical storm sweep through the area and it knocked all the internet out here at uh, 205 Oxford Road and I'm guessing elsewhere up and down the block and so at the last second we've improvised the phone system as we used to do back in the early days of of the program. Uh, If I were at work I imagine it would still be working there but uh, but it's interesting to do it from home and, and even interesting to do it on the phone. Normally at home I would use the webcam, just which has a microphone, so you'd hear the sound that way, and my fabulous new computer system that I've mentioned in previous shows, and a pair of Grado headphones, which I love with an unearthly enthusiasm. They are really good, inexpensive headphones. But I've discovered that they don't they're open-back headphones. They don't keep the sound in necessarily and i found this out while testing a new computer to see how loud it would go i had i was rocking at full volume and my wife and younger daughter burst into the room to say what was going on because the sound was pouring out into the rest of the house through the open backs of the headphones i didn't realize that so now when i do the show i'm going to have to get closed back headphones that means another 8 to 10 months of reading reviews and agonizing over minute differences of things i don't understand and then finally making a purchase of some sort, which will inevitably be a letdown when it happens. But that's what technology is about, after all. Speaking of letdowns, the ECU Pirates were sadly eliminated at the super regional level in the baseball tournament last weekend, but they did win a super regional game for the first time in school history, so things are looking up there. Things are looking up here at Civil War Talk Radio. Next week we have Christopher Lyle McElwain Sr., who has written a book on Alabama in the Civil War, correctly titled Civil War Alabama, which uh, looks very interesting. Just started looking through it after finishing this week's book and and anxious to get to that one. That will be our last live show for the 2015-16 season. We'll be taking the summer hiatus coming back to you in September, maybe even late August, with new shows, and they are all already a lot of new shows lined up. You'll see them over the summer posted on www.impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War Companion website. That's where you want to go to find out who's going to be on next. You can click on the PayPal button there and donate. You can... Uh, otherwise feel connected with the Civil War Talk Radio world, you can go to the Facebook page. Lots of ways to stay in touch, and as always, your ideas for new shows, new people to be on the show are welcome. Please feel free to send them. So tonight's show takes us to the question of, I'm pulling the book out from underneath Candy the Cat, who's helpfully sitting on the keyboard, which is not functioning, pulling the book out here it is sons of the white eagle in the american civil war divided poles in a divided nation uh the author is mark f bilski uh, are you there and we're checking on the sound do we have a microphone open
3: uh yeah jerry can uh i'm here there we go i
1: jan drobny
3: pan bilski Jane drobny
1: uh, that exhausts my story of Polish, um, but I wanted to start with that and then give give the audience the impression we might do the whole interview in Polish uh, just to put a scare into everybody but uh, but in fact we won 't be doing that uh, so you and I met through stephen Ambrose' historical tours uh, historical travel, which you operate and if there's ever a historian's dream job, that sounds like it might be it could you uh, how did you get get involved with doing historical tourism
3: well i actually um i um, had taught at the, i was a teacher at the international School of Louisiana, and I had taught uh two of stephen ambrose's nieces, so I got to know the family a little bit and then went oh. after. Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, uh, when they were uh, resurrecting the company, um, they were looking for someone to help out, and um, I just happened to be available, so um, I started working with them, and it's been doing it ever since, and it's been a great job.
1: So this is your full-time day, day job at this point, is that right? Uh,
3: yes, I mean I do some lecturing. And I, I just got back from a World War II tour last Friday, um, and uh, with a bunch of grad students and, and such. So, um, and of course, I love the Civil War tours also.
1: So, and uh, in connection with that, this book uh, is actually—I think the official publication date is a couple weeks away. Is that right?
3: Uh, yeah, but it's out now. Um, I have. Uh, got all my copies for distribution. So I think Amazon and uh Barnes Noble have it june twenty first or something like that.
1: Excellent. So so, listeners can, so you so you don't have to wait till the end of the month. That's good to hear. I've I've got the unedited reading copy, not for sale, stamped on the cover of mine. Oh yeah, so it, it makes you feel cool to have the the sort of inside track. You get the the preview copy, uh, but I, I was talking uh, with Terry in your office, and she said the box of books that arrived the other day. And it was, it's a big moment when when that when when the new book comes out, and you get to open it and get that new book. Yeah, smell. it's great
3: to see the actual book in print arrive. Now was this originally a doctoral dissertation uh yes i um i kind of gleaned, well not really gleaned, but i i this is all my research for uh my doctoral work and i just morphed it into the book
1: which which is uh not an uncommon route to follow but uh and and it certainly worked out here. Well there there are a lot of approaches to take one thing I, I thought I wanted to start asking about was a little bit about the history of Poland as a self-governing country the in the opening chapters you talk about the the traditions of of democracy and elected monarchy that Poland had which make it unique among European mainland countries in the 17th 18th centuries could you talk a little bit about that background to sort of set the table for, for where these officers you're writing about came from?
3: Uh, yeah. The, um, I think what, what happened with Poland, um, they became very big and very powerful in the um, 16th and 17th centuries. And what their downfall was was maybe uh, too much democratization. Uh, in that they had this elected monarchy, and they had the szlachta, which is the nobility, was able to elect a king, and they frequently would elect a king who was not Polish, uh, which wasn't always bad, but um, it just having it was almost like the American system or the British, for that matter where there's a lot of discord and somebody gets in there and they're elected and uh, now everybody's happy. Uh, but it, when, it, when they came to the 18th century, the three great powers, Prussia, Russia, and Austria, uh, were their neighbors. And those countries did not want a country that promoted any sort of democracy whatsoever. But that thought fomented in Poland, and it stayed with them. And as, as they disintegrated, as the country fell apart, uh, it stayed with the people, especially the, the, uh, the magnates and the nobility.
1: One interesting thing you mentioned is that the, the Polish nobility formed a, a kind of legislature, but they had to decide everything unanimously. One person could veto an act of the whole body. Do I have that right?
3: Uh, yeah, the liberum veto, uh, in Latin, uh, which means one person could veto, uh, a move, uh, an amendment on the floor of the parliament. And it, w- it was really made things difficult to pass. It was kind of like, it was, it would be the equivalent of what we have now with, uh, uh, in Congress with, uh, you have one congressman having the right. ability to veto a whole bill.
1: Like we have with judicial appointments in the Senate. One, one senator can refuse to, to exactly. have it go forward, and that, that holds it up, at least by custom. It doesn't have to be that way, but, but we, right. we've lived with that. So when the American Revolution breaks out, late 18th century, uh, you've got these European nations, you know, Russia, Prussia, Austria, they're aghast. It's bad enough what Poland has been doing, and now these Americans are going to vote on things. But do you have Polish soldiers interested in fighting for the colonies against Great Britain? And and this really starts a a trend.
3: Right, and um, that's what you mentioned, Kosciuszko and Pulaski, and they came over here, and Pulaski of course was considered the father of the American cavalry, and um, um at West Point, um, they made a mark for themselves and they were fighting for freedom Then, following that, the French Revolution, it was just a revolutionary period that moved into the 19th century and carried on, which is what uh, basically I connected the characters I write about in this book.
1: Well, there are nine of those characters, and we're going to take a short break now and come back in just a minute, but I'll be curious to ask uh, about who those nine characters are and and why why those and not others, and we'll ask that and other questions in just a minute when we come back. Our guest today, Mark F. Bielski, author of Sons of the White Eagle in the American Civil War, Divided Poles in a Divided Nation. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
4: The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk. Gets those synapses in the brain
0: firing really fast. All the time. But, uh, the number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovichg at ecu dot That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And
1: welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Mark Bielski, author of Sons of the White Eagle in the American Civil War Divided Poles in a Divided Nation It's a look at nine men who fought or otherwise served in the governments of the North and the South during the Civil War but unlike uh, the soldiers from some uh, European countries those who came from Poland tended to divide fairly evenly Uh, Well, I guess let's get the numbers straight How many... How many soldiers of Polish descent fought in the Civil War that, that you came across? With?
3: Um, it, we're looking at an upward estimate of about 6,500 total, uh, about um, 1,500 for the Confederacy and 5,000 for the Union. And um, so it, it's really that's why it's, the book is not a comparison with other. Like the Irish and the Germans, which were considerably more numerous, two hundred thousand Germans and one hundred and seventy seven thousand Irish, um, because they were here for a different reason. they were from a generally from a different class
1: yeah most of the soldiers you talk about are, are officers or government officials, so were there uh, were yeah. more of the polls of the, of the officer class
3: the The ones that I write about are um, Uh, All but one were from the nobility, and they had, uh, uh, the older ones had left uh, Europe because they basically had a price on their head, and uh, the youngest of the group, or the youngest two of the group, um, were were already, were here, but they were not, uh, um, one was from the peasant class it came from Silesia.
1: so these these people divide you know some fight for the north, some for the south um, I mentioned in the introduction there they they had different ways of viewing this uh, Poland had been in rebellion against Russia periodically throughout the nineteenth century. there were of course the famous revolutions of eighteen forty eight throughout europe that that failed uh there were rebellions and 1830s, uh, just a lot of ferment, so one way to see the rebellion of the south is as another uh, well i guess i i'm presuming is that how some of these these soldiers saw the the secession of the south
3: uh yeah i think exactly the um the ones that uh for example um uh Sulikovsky and ignatius shemansky. Uh, who mm-hmm. fought for the Confederacy, they were, they were definitely thinking that um, uh, the South had a right to secede and form their own nation. So they were, I, in, in that way, they identified with Poland. And then there, there was Shizhinovsky, um, the Union general, and, and Joseph Carget, who uh, the cavalry leader from New Jersey, who felt that, uh, you know, this a war to preserve the Union. And they were also uh, a little bit interestingly enough they were they also were anti-slavery
1: the the uh, the northern or the southern or both
3: uh the northern the mm-hmm. uh, two of the two of the, the southerners had conflicting views <clears throat> the um uh one with uh Ignatius shamansky who was from Louisiana, uh owned a plantation and raced horses and had slaves. Uh, he fit very well in the planter class in Louisiana, uh, but um, um, Sulikowski, who was considered one of the best officers in the Confederate Army at one time, um, he had he wanted nothing to do with slavery. He was just there to be him, uh, um, a soldier and lead men.
1: What? What about? Uh, so these are officers you're looking at. Was there? I mean, certainly not all six thousand. Uh, Poles fighting in the war were officers. Were there? Were there whole units of Polish soldiers the way we have, you know, Irish and, and German regiments?
3: Well, they uh, they did have the Louisiana Polish Brigade, which formed in New Orleans. Uh, by Gaspard Tuchman. And then Sulikovsky took it over and led them north to Virginia to fight. Um, but there were in that whole brigade, there were only there were fewer than a hundred poles. They called it the Polish Brigade as a kind of a badge of honor because they were fighting for freedom. They identified with the poles, and in, in the north they had the Polish Legion, which uh, was uh, Vladimir Kuzianovsky. Mm-hmm. And and um, once again, it was not uh, comprised of, uh, entirely of Poles, it was mostly German, they, as you, you probably know, they, they were in the 11th Corps, um, they were under uh, Schurz and Siegel and uh, mostly German in that unit.
1: Well, that, that, let's talk about that a minute because that's an interesting story. Uh, you know, most listeners recognize the Eleventh Corps, of the Army of the Potomac, as the 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 Dutch, uh, the Deutsch, the Germans, and uh, you know their their story of, of unfortunate tactical positioning is, is well known. They were out on the extreme flank at Chancellorsville under General Howard when while Jackson launched his famous flank attack and, and devastated them. And then on the first day at Gettysburg, they, they are strung out just north of the town and uh, once again subjected to flank attacks and pushed back. So there was a lot of uh, prejudice against foreigners in the United States generally and, and in the uh, the armies of the Union, which then spilled over onto the 11th Corps, So were were Poles part of, I I assume they were caught up in that, that that the Know Nothing movement and other anti-immigrant movements didn't feel any better about Polish immigrants than they did about German ones.
3: Um, You know, it's it's interesting um, because in my research, I didn't find any of that nativist attitude toward the Poles. hmm. Um, You see a lot of it toward the Germans, of course, and the Irish but maybe it's because the polls were not so numerous uh, and not and therefore not a threat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't see it, although uh, Shizhanovsky, or Kriz, as his men called him, the name is tough to pronounce, his uh, appointment as general didn't come because, as they said in Congress, nobody could pronounce his name. <laughs> I mean, didn't come for thing. a long time, That. Yeah. He was promoted to brigadier, and then it, it languished in Congress, and then it it, uh, it expired, and then they finally put him again at the end of the war, and it, it went through.
1: There's an anecdote about uh, General Schimelfenig, also in the 11th Corps, that Lincoln supposedly yeah. looked at the name and said, "You know, I don't know anything about him, but his name is worth the brigade, uh, and and signed off on his appointment, but, but Schusenowski did not get the same benefit uh, of having a difficult name. So, yeah. but, but, uh, so initially commanded what was called the Polish Legion. Now, was that the 54th New York Regiment? the uh, 58th New York. 58. 58th New York. Okay, so they were, they become part of his brigade and, uh, and then they're part of the 11th Corps. So, right. so they, they run into this, um, you know, twice in these two battles in '63 at Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. And I, I, I got a message from a, a listener to the show asking about the Germans uh, it, and and how they were regarded. And I uh, mentioned, um, uh, I'm blanking on the name, I think it's uh, uh, Christian sure. Keller's book on, on the, uh. the Germans at, at Chancellorsville. It's a, a recent... Analysis, where yeah. he looks at the same nativism issues. So, so the the, the polls are caught up in this.
3: Um, uh, well, uh, I, yeah, they were, but you know, they um, had, it, even though Jackson did roll up the flank at Chancellorsville spectacularly, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Schusinovsky did uh, manage some resistance in that with his his men. Um, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, wasn't successful because it was a complete rout by the end of the evening, but um, uh, they did meet, and then, uh, curiously enough, two of the characters, besides Shizhenovsky, uh, Yastrzewski, who, uh, Leon Yostrevsky, who's a young officer in the 10th Louisiana, was in the Confederate troops under Jackson in that flanking movement. So there are a couple occasions where they met up, of course not face-to-face, but um on the battlefield.
1: That's right. I think Second Manassas you mentioned the same thing that these right. some of these soldiers, these exiles or refugees or immigrants as the case may be, end up encountering each other uh, mm-hmm. across the way. So the uh the the um Eleventh Corps did actually resist better in, in the records of those who were in the units uh like, like Susanowski, uh they, they reported that they you know did their best and managed to stand and slow the the attack and The description of an unparalleled route tends to come from from those who weren't there but who who held this prejudice against the immigrants in general what about uh the, <clears throat> talk about some of the southern officers that you looked at uh and their combat experience.
3: Well, um, I think one of the one of my favorite episodes is in um, talking about Colonel uh, Sulikowski, Sulikowski mm-hmm. who leads the Louisiana Polish Brigade, which later became the Louisiana Fourteenth Infantry, um, up to Virginia, with the infamous stop at Grand Junction, Tennessee. Uh, where that the Great Riot took place. And um, uh, that was when all the Louisiana soldiers, who later became the Tigers, um, having had an excess of whiskey that they procured along the way, uh, broke into the town and, and were destroying things and the hotel and stores and raiding and all that Sulikowski so burst on the scene with a couple of pistols, shot one or two of them, and had the others arrested, and quelled the, rebellion, the, the riot. Um, it was written up in all the papers Memphis, uh, Corinth, Mississippi, Nashville, New Orleans. Uh, but then he got them up to Virginia, and they performed very well. And, uh, and oh, he that's was just a great singer.
1: Yeah, the, the riot in Grand Junction, that, that is a great scene where he, one man faces down 200 with his force of personality and two pistols, uh, and they're all going to listen to him. So yeah, you I, mentioned newspapers. Oh, go ahead.
3: Yeah, no, I'm sorry.
1: You mentioned newspapers describing that event. I was curious about uh, research sources, where you found material on these particular soldiers? Do they have papers in the United States? Did you have to translate um, material or have things translated? How, how did you study this?
3: Well, I did I did some translations on my own uh, from uh, the um, diaries that were written in Polish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all the translations of the book are my own, whether Polish or French. But the newspapers from the time, for the accounts of the battles and uh, and like to ride at Grand Junction, I, I just got through the Library of Congress mm-hmm. and or two-lane library here in New Orleans. Um, so, so there's a wealth of material out there. It's, it's, it was a lot of fun to do
1: that, that well, this level of, of research is always it is fun it's very absorbing once one is engaged in it. Um, one person I definitely want to ask about, and in a minute or so we'll take another break and come back to him, is, uh, uh, Count Gorowski, the, uh, uh, described as Lincoln's gadfly, a, uh, right. sort of political figure without portfolio. Uh, what, um... Well, well, tell us a little bit about his his background. Who was this guy? He, he tends to show up in a lot of books as just dismissed. He gets mentioned, oh, and there was this annoying guy. Uh, I
3: think, but you know I I, was he? I I think he gets dismissed largely uh, by uh, historians who who dislike the radical Republicans. Um, but he was a darling of that group, uh, like Secretary Stanton, for example. But the, the, his chief fault, Borowski's chief fault, as brilliant as he was, he, he knew 12 languages. Uh, he worked at the State Department. He had worked at the, uh, for Horace Greeley at the New York Daily Tribune. His chief fault was he couldn't get along with people. And as you know, working in political circles, uh, if you can't get along with people, you're not going to go very far. But he's a fascinating character.
1: So, what? What? Uh, I mean, did he? He worked in the State Department. Did he have uh, a lot of influence?
3: Uh, why? Why do we know about him? Well, he. What he did is he read and translated uh, the news from Europe and documents, and kept Secretary Stewart. I'm sorry, Seward informed as of what was going on in Europe. As you know, the uh, Union, the only ally the Union had, especially in the early years, was uh, uh, Tsarist Russia. So he could read uh, Russian, German, French, uh, all the languages, and kept him informed. <laughs> He's often referred to as a minor official.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But if you read his diaries and then you read Seward and, and the letters and all that, he's uh, pretty influential. And then Lincoln thought of him as uh, the only one who he, he felt could be a physical threat. Which I was amazed when I read that—that
1: so that he he thought Lincoln thought Gorowski might actually Garofsky. attack him or try try to assassinate him. Yes. Uh, that, yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, thing to have said about you when you're in in high Washington circles. Well, we'll take another short break. We'll come back, talk more about Adam Gorowski and other figures in the Civil War effort on both sides. We're talking with Mark Bielski, author of Sons of the White Eagle in the American Civil War, Divided Poles in a Divided Nation. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back
0: to Civil War
1: Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Mark Bielski, author of Sons of the White Eagle and the American Civil War, Divided Poles and a Divided Nation. It's a... Uh, improvisatory night here on Civil War Talk Radio using the old-fashioned landline for the first time in half a dozen years because of a big electrical storm in the Greenville area that knocked out the Skype connection we'd normally use, and there was so much rain that I looked out the window and a six-inch diameter turtle, box turtle, looks like, is walking up the front walk. Never seen anything like that before, so strange things are happening uh, but hopefully we're we're still online and staying connected and able to do the show in our last segment. we were talking about the uh, the allegiances of uh, some of the officers north and south uh, from Poland who fought in the war. In particular, uh, Adam Gorowski, Count Gorowski, he was called by uh, uh, many in the Union government uh, a, a translator and uh, a busybody might be too negative a term. Uh, but the book, uh, the biography of him uh, has a subtitle, Lincoln's Gadfly, which sums up the opinion many historians have had of him. Uh, but, Martin, you said he, he was somebody who Lincoln actually feared for his life when, when dealing with this man. Did, did you see anything? Uh, yeah. In, uh, um, to, why, I, why would you feel that way?
3: Well, I, I think, you know, in those days, it wasn't, uh, you weren't so shielded from the public as, as the president would be now, for example. Um, and. Uh, so the president could travel in, in uh, social circles at um, soirees, cocktail parties, so to speak. Then other guests would be there, and Gowrowski was so outspoken, and he all, always had that radical Republican uh, voice and uh, attitude, um, and he would be so vociferous that Lincoln felt that he was just so out there that he might do something drastic and he had the ear of Edward Stanton the uh, Secretary of War who was actually a friend of his Um, but the thing with Gorowski is he never could he he couldn't get along with people long enough to get anything really done
1: so he got his opinions out but not not a huge amount of influence now you mentioned something interesting about oh go ahead yeah
3: no, I was going to say one of the things that uh, one of his friends wrote about him is that, as brilliant as he was, it's a shame that he was uh, that he irritated people so much <laughs> that that he couldn't be so influential because he had brilliant ideas.
1: Well, that that is, is definitely part of politics. If you can't if you can't get people to listen to your ideas, they're not going to be able to follow them. You mentioned uh, the role of Russia, which is an interesting factor, uh, because Poland and, and Russia, er, er, Polish patriots were opposed to Russia, which had divided up their country and, and were, were seeking independent Poland. So for many Poles, Russia is the enemy. And you said Russia was, was an ally of the United States, or at least a, a firm supporter of the United States during the Civil War. So right. that... that Means if the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend, you have an odd set of, uh, of friends going on there?
3: well, the the, uh, the Confederates looked at, at Russia and they equated that to the Union, the United States government, like an imperialistic um, power. <laughs> and um, they identified with the Poles uh more because they were looking for an independence like the Confederacy was. So it was easy for Talkman, who is a, um, an attorney, um, who practiced before the Supreme Court, um, and his other his fellow polls who sided with the South, to look at the Constitution as, you know, we're justified in secede and forming our own country.
1: So, so the how would the northern poles get around that if if they've been if some of them, you know, were exiled because they've been fighting against Russia and now suddenly Russia's on the same side? What uh, how do they rationalize that?
3: Yeah. They it's it's interesting. That's that's one of the chief uh points of the in when I write about that is because they both have the same views. But the northern the uh Officers who fought the union felt that the um, they were working to preserve this country that that they came to as one country, one nation, like they wanted, it just like Poland was in their memories, um, and that of course they didn't like the bondage thing because they, they had abolished serfdom in Poland long before Russia did. Um, so. It's it's just interesting that constitutional conflict between these two groups.
1: So they and, and some of them in the north would just have to swallow hard and accept that Russia was was an ally. Uh, now you said some of these soldiers fighting in the United States in, in the American Civil War had in mind that this was just a way to keep keep in shape, as it were, and, and plan to go back and continue to fight against Russia later. Did any of them actually do that? Uh, yeah,
3: actually, uh, Ludwig Jeklinski, um, he did, he came up, it was almost like a practice exercise. He fought with the, uh, Le, uh, Alphonse Perdue from New York, uh, on the peninsula campaign and fought all the way up to, uh, Chancellorsville. He talks about it in his diaries about meeting General Hooker, um, I'm not sure if he did or didn't, you know, came close or whatever, but uh, he did go back to Poland to continue the fight, and he fought in uh, the group Jechi Varshali, which is the children of Warsaw against the Russians in the 1863 rebellion. So he did go back. So, so for some, this was just the first
1: act. Um, and
3: I think I think there were some Irishmen who who had the same attitude and wanted to come over here for basically practice,
1: mm-hmm. and, and then later fight the the British for their Irish independence. Yeah. Uh, now, one figure we haven't talked about who that was very interesting, uh, uh, Carjay, the the soldier with the French name. Um, who who was he? And, and talk a little
3: bit about his experience. He had um, he had uh, fought against the Prussians. Actually, he was in the Prussian army, and in the uh, eighteen in the rebellions of the eighteen forties against the King of Prussia, he led some soldiers against them, and then a, a Polish revolt, and was severely wounded. And his family had come. Uh, even though he has a somewhat French name, they had been in Poland for, I think, uh, six or seven generations, because there are very few French names that begin with a K. Uh, (laughs) But he was a good cavalry officer. He escaped from prison. He he made his way out, uh, um, basically like a a Pony Express escape to a port, and uh, made his way to the United States, and Ended up as a Union cavalry officer with uh, the first, and then second New Jersey cavalry.
1: So, his, and, yeah, his story would make a good, uh, you know, screenplay. The, the The adventures. The if I recall, he was the one who was actually was commanding a Prussian unit that was supposed to suppress the rioters, but instead he draws his sword and says, "Let's fight on their side."
3: Yeah, he, that's when he, he yelled out in German, Hock, labor, das Volk, uh, to support the people. And he was arrested for that and imprisoned. And then his yeah. escape was pretty... You talk about a screenplay. You know, they, they put uh, rations and horses at like 12-mile increments up to the porters set, in so he could get to the ship that, that was going to sail. So it's a great story.
1: So he makes it to the United States, finds another war going on. Right. And uh, he fought, uh, you mentioned he was notable for fighting against Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, the, the wizard. Yeah, of the he was,
3: Yeah, he was uh, one of the only ones to ever defeat Forrest in the field. It wasn't a major battle, but at Bolivar, Tennessee, uh, some folks might say Bolivar. Came after Simon Ballar, but he um, uh, got Forrest in such a position where Forrest charged him, he did a counter charge and he ended up uh, having Forrest leave the field. So um, quite an accomplishment for against Forrest who really didn't lose too often.
1: Yeah, absolutely, no, Forrest was the the most you know, certainly, well-known cavalry leader of the, the Western Theater. The so looking at the the picture as a whole, what what is the takeaway from this? We've got these officers coming with a, a divided mindset. They they see the war in different through different prisms. They fight in it for different reasons. Some of them afterwards stay here. Some go back. Europe to continue fighting for for freedom as they perceive it. What uh, what what is there anything to tie this all together? What what do we get from
3: this? Well, I th- I think it's uh, what I would say, Jerry, is that it's as confusing as any war is, mm-hmm. because you can see how these guys, um, the officers, and that I write about how they interpret things differently and you can apply it to anything at any time, like present day or whatever, but they both were, both had their ideas of freedom and uh, individual rights and such, and they were willing to go to war for it. Uh, that's what I, I, what really excited me when I started reading about it um, about it years ago. Um, it, 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 as you know, the you can interpret the Constitution just like folks interpret the Bible, um, many different ways. And that's basically what these, uh, these uh, officers did.
1: Yeah, I mean, they really ad- adopt a, a, the whole spectrum of, of opinions on the war from, from outright pro slavery to pro secession on legalistic grounds to pro union to uh, abolitionist. Uh, the, the, they they cross the map, and coming from this particularly democratic, small-D democratic tradition of Polish government going back to the elected monarchies of, of the early modern era, it really is striking how they, they sort of embody the, the division of America when, when they come here. Uh, they don't have a single... Uh, a single outlook on the United States version of civil war.
3: Uh, so, yes, I, you know, I think it's interesting they get here, and it's not like they they got they got to shore and said, "Give me a gun." Mm-hmm. Um, they try to um, meld themselves into American life and become Americans, and then um, in doing so, they sided with one side with, with the north or the south.
1: Well, you mentioned the one enlisted man, uh, I think he was in Texas, where right. you know, the Texan community is going to war, I'll go to war with him. And then he gets captured and they explain what the war is about, and he
3: says, oh, well, then I'll fight with you guys. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> Especially when he had the option of going to freeze on uh, the shores of Lake Erie.
1: Yeah, yeah. if you're going to be in a prison camp, that might be a better alternative if you can possibly yeah. avoid it. So are you looking at uh, any research projects on this scale going forward or focusing I'm on historical tours, I'm, or what, what's next for you?
3: I, I'm dealing the the historical tours, of course, uh, Civil War and... Uh, World War II, but uh, I'm also working on a book on Stonewall Jackson, which probably won't be till next year when it comes out. And it's okay. about the well, conspiracy that's... about his death.
1: Interesting. Well, it will be something we can look forward to. In the meantime, listeners, there is Sons of the White Eagle in the American Civil War, Divided Poles in a Divided Nation, for you to read by Mark F. Bielski, our guest tonight. Uh, so, Dovidzynia, Mark. If I said that right? Yep, Dovidzynia. Uh, they're close enough, uh, but again, yeah, that was that was the second half of my full story, Polish. <laughs> and I, 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 well, that's pretty good. I, when I grew up, I had uh, my parents had friends who spoke Polish uh, regularly at family gatherings. I would hear the words, but uh, I never never learned it. So I had to look them up just for today. Anyway, thanks for yeah, being on the to. show, and, and good luck with uh, the next book.